Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. It's time. It's the big night. It's Wednesday. It's time for a super duper extra special episode of Fiction, where we get to celebrate the launch of Drumroll. We are overflowing with excitement about yes. tonight. And I am Christy Woodson Harvey. <laughs> I'm Mary Kay Andrews. You're off to a great start. Yes. <laughs> I am Patty Callahan Henry. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Meg Walker. And I think I'm Ron Block. <laughs> We're sure. <laughs> And this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support independent bookstores, authors, and librarians. And of course, tonight we also have with us our amazing managing director, Meg Walker, and our rock star podcast host extraordinaire, Ron Block. Why? Because tonight mm. it's all about Kristen and her gorgeous new novel. And we hope that you already have it on your nightstands and in your bookshelves. But if you don't, we are about to change all that because our extraordinary, <laughs> amazing friends in fiction theater could convince anyone to buy any book anytime we are sure. <laughs> I mean, why else would we keep doing it? <laughs> right. We don't know. And it's a good question. But um, it would not be a launch without a bit of friends in fiction theater. That's right. And of course, you know, we're here to bring you, and when we're not doing theater, we're here to bring you incredible authors, hot reads, and fascinating interviews, all while supporting independent booksellers. And one way you can help us support indies is to buy from us, buy from them when and where you can, or to visit our Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page, where you can find books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount. And speaking of amazing books, don't forget to join the Friends in Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa on their Facebook page. Coming up really soon on June 19th, Patty will be joining them to discuss the secret book of Floor Lee. Oh, That's and me. I will be standing in for Lisa that night. So I That's will right. be. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. so excited. Oh, so so Meg. Because yeah. no one knows more about this book than poor Meg. She can do, give my speech. I, she can do I think I can thing. deliver the speech. Yeah. Hey, you don't even yeah. have to come, Patty. Meg can just hear. Just get a she can flat answer patty. every question, give the whole talk. I know, I know. Um, awesome. Poor thing. Uh, well, and you've been listening to our Writer's Block podcast, haven't you? <laughs> we'll always post a link to the newest episode on the Friends in Fiction Facebook and Instagram. On our most recent episode, Out Now, Kristen and I talked to TJ Newman about her new novel, Drowning. Sorry. And trust me. You're going to love it. And you're going to love the research that this woman did. Mm. Talk about suffering for your craft. Wait till you hear it. <laughs> Woo! 
<clears throat> Coming this Friday, Kristen and I will be talking to one of our favorite literary power couples, Anne Hood, who will be talking about her memoir, Fly Girl, and her husband, Michael Ruhlman, who will talk to us about his brand new, what might be my favorite book of the year, The Book of <laughs> Cocktail Ratios. All right. <laughs> so listen, review, subscribe, and share with a friend if you like what you hear. Okay. So you all know that our amazing, brilliant co-founder and co-host Kristen Harmel is launching her book tonight. I'm just reminding you in case you're tuning in <laughs> five minutes late, this is the launch of The Paris Daughter. You know Kristen, so we're not going to spend a lot of time giving her a long introduction like we normally do. We're just going to dive right into The Paris Daughter, a novel of two mothers, two daughters, an allied bomb that falls where it shouldn't, and two families ripped apart forever. Kristen, take it away. Why, thank you very much. So welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Paris Daughter. Our story opens on a warm September morning in the Bois du Boulogne, a park on the western edge of Paris. It is here that we meet American artist Elise Leclerc, one of the book's two main characters. Hello, I'm Elise and I'm a woodcarver. I'm living what I thought would be my dream life. I'm in Paris, socializing with people like Pablo Picasso and Dora Maar, and I'm expecting my first child in just a few months. I'm married to a handsome Frenchman too, an artist like me. And isn't that every girl's dream? To get whisked away to Paris by a man who understands you to the very depths of your soul? And I am Elise's husband, Olivier Leclerc. Though obviously nobody knows who I'm married to. They obviously know me from my paintings, which sell for pretty penny. And don't tell Elise, but this nonsense about understanding her to the depths of her soul, sure, she can do beautiful things with her carving tools and a block of wood. But let's be honest. I am the artist here, not her. Collier's Magazine described me as having the brush of Picasso with the looks of Clark Gable. And how could a man of my stature turn down the opportunity to have a pretty young thing like her on my arm? <laughs> Olivier is very Irish sounding. Well, let's get to say I'm an Irish really quickly. <laughs> Shoom. Okay. In the park, mere hours before word reaches Paris that World War II has begun with the invasion of Poland, Elise is sketching a bird, trying to find her way back into the sense of creativity that has eluded her lately. But when she looks down at her work, it looks like a tangle of senseless scribbles. I've lost my touch. I can't seem to feel the things I'm supposed to feel anymore. Olivier feels as if he's drifting further and further away. Surely this baby we're expecting together will change things between us, though, won't it? And just then, Elise experiences a sudden cramp in her side, followed by another which makes her blood run cold with fear. Oh no, the baby! I can't be in labor now, it's far too soon. As another cramp brings her to her knees, suddenly there's a woman by her side, a woman with two little boys, aged two and four, who are there to play in the park. Madame, Madame, are you all right? This is Juliette Foulon, our second main character, who we'll soon learn is also an American in Paris. Unlike Elise, though, her marriage is a very happy one. Her French husband, Paul, inherited a small bookshop from his parents, and together he and Juliette have grown it into something magical. They are also raising a beautiful family, which includes sons Claude, who is four, and Alphonse, who's two. 
Like Elise, Juliet is pregnant. Oh, I'm fine. I'm just a little dizzy. The women quickly introduce themselves to each other, and in a moment of conversation, they learn that they're both expecting their babies in January. Who knows? Perhaps they will even be friends, your child and mine. Now shall we go, Madame Leclerc? Go where? To see a doctor, of course. Come now. My shop is very near the park. Elise protests, but Juliet insists. Elise's cramps resemble contractions, and she knows she must make sure the, that this woman with whom she's already feeling a kinship is safe. They walk quickly to Juliet's shop just to the west of the park, and it turns out to Elise's surprise and delight to be a beautiful bookstore, overflowing with books and with magic. And as all the best bookstores are just like that, it is called La Librairie des Rives, Rez, whatever. <laughs> or the Book Drop of Dreams. I practice that all day. <laughs> what is this place? It's incredible. Why? Thank you. <laughs> My husband Paul and I have spent years making it into what it is today, a place where everyone belongs and where all of us can find our own dreams between the pages of books. In fact, hey, honey, hi, there's my husband now. Bonjour, je m'appelle Paul. I'm madly, <laughs> I'm madly in love with my wife, Juliet. Of Our life you here are. on the western edge of Paris is nearly perfect. This new baby we're expecting will be a wonderful addition to our family. Right now, though, I'm just as worried as Juliet is about this new woman she has brought into the shop. Like my wife, she's pregnant. Her face is as white as a sheet. She looks quite unwell. I'll go get Dr. Babin. Well done. While they wait, Juliet confesses that she's especially worried about Elise because she herself lost an infant daughter a few years earlier. So, you see... I know what it feels like to lose a child. How did it feel? I'm so sorry, that was terribly rude of me. No, no, it's quite all right. Nobody has ever asked me that before. It was the most helpless I've ever felt in my life. And the grief, it's hard to describe. It felt like a flock of birds. So many of them taking flight with nowhere to go. Soon, Paul returns with the doctor, who spends some time examining a terrified Elise, while Paul and Juliet look on, worried. Finally, the doctor steps back, nodding. Just as I thought. Practice contractions. You are not having a baby today, madame. Are you certain, doctor? Quite. In fact, madame Leclerc, it means your body is preparing for the birth, like calisthenics for the big event. Elise finally relaxes a bit and lets herself imagine a life that's different than the one she has. She agrees to return to, return to Juliet's shop again. And once she's home, she begins to carve, drawing from a block of wood the shape of birds, tethered to the ground, their wings straining against the sky. They're Juliet's birds of grief, taking flight with nowhere to go. The first piece of art Elise has created in months. Something about this new friendship has broken through the tangle of Elise's fears, allowing her to create again. Later that night, Olivier comes home, his <laughs> eyes glimmering with something dangerous. Where on earth have you been all afternoon, woman? Hitler <laughs> has invaded Poland. The war has begun. Oh, good. Everything changes from that moment on. Olivier becomes involved with a resistance group, growing more and more reckless and putting Elise in danger, too. 
It is my chance to make a mark. Sure, I care about protecting my fellow countrymen from the Germans who have overrun our city. But you know what matters more? Being a hero. Making sure the world knows my name. For Juliet, her husband Paul, and the children, the war makes their little magical bookshop go quiet. Our life grows difficult. Food is strictly rationed. We worry about the Germans invading France. We are all scared of what's to come. On the first day of 1940, Elise goes into labor, welcoming a baby the following day. She names her Mathilde, and a week later, Juliet, too, gives birth to a little girl, who she names Lucy. For a few moments in time, life is as idyllic as it could be, with the war looming just outside France's borders. Elise brings Mathilde often to Juliet's shop, and Lucy and Mathilde begin to become as close as sisters, just as their mothers are. But then, in May of 1940, Germany invades France, and on the 10th of June, 83 years ago this very week, in fact, the French government flees Paris. The Germans occupy the city just a week later. Juliet and Elise grow closer and closer as the city closes in around them. They are each other's families now. Two and a half years later, in September of 1942, when Mathilde and Lucy are two and a half, Elise's husband, Olivier, the spectacular painter with the wonderful French accent, is arrested for his resistance activities and tortured. The Germans want to know who he's working with so that they can arrest and execute everyone involved. I don't tell them, of course. I'm a hero, remember? I'm not going to give up the names of other people in my network. So instead, to avoid the worst of the torture, I give them the first name I think of. My wife, Elise Leclerc. Mm. Hmm. Olivier is executed. Yes. And Elise learns with horror that the Germans, who now believe that she was part of Olivier's plot, are coming for her. Her only chance of survival for both herself and Mathilde is to get out of Paris. But she can't take her daughter with you, with her, for the authorities are looking for an American woman on the run with a little girl. I have no choice but to leave my Mathilde with Juliet, where she will be safe until I return. Paul and I will protect her. Elise, I swear it, we will. We love her. We love her just as much as we love our own children. We, so we, Elise, we do. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry that your husband now has a Scottish accent. <laughs> <laughs> so Elise flees south to a town named Orignon in which those of you who have read the Book of Lost Names might remember. She prays each night for her daughter, but knows that her best friend is doing all she can to keep Matilda safe. But nowhere is safe in the midst of war, and one sunny day in 1943, with Paris in bloom, with the horse track in the western suburbs opening for the season, and with the world looking as beautiful as can be, the air raid siren sound. Outside Juliet's perfect little bookshop, they begin to shriek, and an ominous rumble fills the air. Claude, Alphonse, Lucy! Get the children to the cellar! There's an explosion nearby, very close, and the ground rolls, nearly throwing Juliet off her feet. The children are screaming. The air is filled with dust and debris. Paul dashes toward the girls, calling over his shoulder. Juliet, get the boys! Juliet sees Paul hoist Lucy and Mathilde, one in each arm, as another bomb explodes so nearby that the front window is shattered, sending a spray of broken glass into the store. 
Juliet is a millimeter away from grabbing little Alphonse's hand, a centimeter away from Claude, when a sudden whistling overhead turns into an urgent shriek. In the millisecond before the world goes black, I know exactly what is about to happen and that I can do nothing about it. I cannot stop it. It is already too late. In the instant that exists between light and dark, between life and death, between the before and the after, the roar grows deafening, the flash of light eclipses everything, and Juliet's bones feel as though they've been reduced to dust as the world around her disappears. An Allied bomb intended for a nearby automobile factory has landed directly on the idyllic little bookstore. Not everyone has survived. And by the time the Germans are driven out of France and Elise returns to Paris in September 1944, Juliet has vanished without a trace, taking all knowledge of Mathilde's final moments with her. Imagine knowing that your daughter has died, but not knowing when or how or what her final moments might have been like. The only sign that Mathilde ever existed at all is a small headstone in the same cemetery where Juliet's husband, Paul, sorry, Paul, has been buried. And so (laughs) you're like, oh, yes. (laughs) And so goes Elise's life or a half-life, really. The kind you live when you blame yourself for your child's death and when you don't know what happened in her final moments. Until 1960, 16 years later, when Juliet resurfaces in New York and Elise must cross an ocean to find the woman who holds the answers to Mathilde's final moments. What she discovers there will change everything, but you'll have to read the book to find out what happens next. And that, my friends, is The Paris Daughter. Well, <laughs> bravo, bravo, bravo. Is that French? And excellent bravo. accents, may I may I say. That was well Another successful-ish production of the Friends of Fiction Theater. And now we all know why I never lived in Paris, because I cannot pull off a beret. Everything, Christy. Yeah. It is time to dive into garbage bag on your yeah. head. <laughs> new, new idea for the next lunch. There Christy you go. has to wear a garbage bag on her head. I'm still, still, I'm still reeling from being killed off. Sorry. 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 Yeah. Bye. <laughs> It's <laughs> probably because they were like, this This man doesn't know where he's from. <laughs> you weren't just killed off. You were executed, baby. Please, <laughs> Meg died in a heroic way. You like, after you betraying your wife. Yeah, yeah. I give up your wife, the mother of your child, by the way. Thanks for that. That was great. Wow. You thought you were a great Sean- naked. <laughs> What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Kathy was a great Jamaican. Scottish. John says, thought you were a great Jamaican. Amazing. Or not appreciated around you. They're appreciated. Very appreciated. Much better than I did in Patty's launch. So I was just grateful that I was American and didn't have to. Yeah, ditto. All right. Well, we are ready to dive into the Paris Daughter. Have we mentioned that you should run out and buy it immediately? I'm just saying, everyone on the page is talking about it already. We are all obsessed with it. We loved it so much. Loved it. Everyone's going to be talking about this book, not just on Friends of Fiction, but everywhere. And if you have not read it, you're going to be 
Yes. Allons-y. Allons-y. Go get it. Yeah. <laughs> well done. What does that mean? Let's go. Arande, Let's go. Arande. I don't know. Look at her. Okay. Well, and we know that you are dying to know what happens after our beautiful production. What happens to Juliet, Elise, and the children? Kristen, everyone survives, right? Nope. Oh, don't tell me that. Okay, Kristen. Well, you know, we always ask, ask, ask our guests on the show this question. So now we're going to ask you. We know a little bit about what the book is about, but what is it really about? You know, you would think I'd have a better answer since we ask this every week, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think um, I think all of my World War II books are, to some extent, about finding strength in the darkness, finding a way to be the light in the darkness. I think that's sort of the theme that keeps coming up again and again. Um, but this book in particular, I think, is about the power of friendship when it goes right. Um, the power of motherhood, the way that motherhood changes us and transforms us and, and makes us fight for something bigger than ourselves. Um, it's about the effects of war on the civilian population, too. I mean, I certainly have addressed that in other World War II books, but I think this is the closest look we have at what happens to... Um, to some very just ordinary people and their children living in the midst of, uh, of World War II, um, living in Paris and World War II. Um, and I think it's about moving on when life takes a road we didn't expect it to. Um, because in this book, one of the women becomes very mired in the past um, and the other one is very held back by the past. So I think it, um, it is also about putting that past behind you and learning how to put one foot in front of the other into the future, um, even after something terrible has happened. Mm -hmm. very Perfectly, well said. perfectly said. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned this is um, one of many World War II novels. Um, it, it's your seventh, and it's your fifth set in World War One, World War Two, France. After the sweetness of forgetting, the Rue Amelie, the winemaker's wife, and the Book of Lost Names. But you also take us here to 1960 New York, which is something I think new for you. Yeah. And uh, where the final 40% of the book actually takes place. Can you talk to us a bit about why you find World War II and France so compelling? And what makes you depart from that time period in the final portion of The Paris Daughter? Well, I obviously had to depart from the time period and put her in 1960 so that she had a chance of overlapping with Patty's characters, who were also set in yeah. 1960. <laughs> <laughs> so the, one day when we write our like overlapping short story, you know, for both books, they'll have a chance to meet. Actually, it, it's funny, though, Patty, right? I mean, that was just we were both we working on that completely we independently and, and yeah. we both wound up in World War II and in 1960, although you were in London and I was in New York. But um uh, yeah, so I, I guess to take the first part of that question first, what, why do I find World War II and France so compelling? Yes. Um, France means something to me, um, and, and always has. My, um, you know, I, I think I've talked, I know I've talked before about how I used to live in Paris. I mean, that was 20 years ago. Uh, have I mentioned that? Have I mentioned that? No. Paris? <laughs> no. Um, you know, that was 20 years ago. It feels so much more recent, but it was 20 years ago. And it was, I was living there when I tried to write my first book. Um, it was a summer and a, a period of my life that really changed me a lot. Um, but living there, I was stunned to realize how much World War II history I didn't know, how much World War II history that had taken place there on the street I lived on even um, that I had never heard about before. So I think that kind of started me on this journey. And I later learned that my um, my dad's uh, 
mother's mother, so my great grandmother, um, had uh, lived just a few like like within five minutes walking distance of where I had lived. So like I had this draw to Paris, this pull to Paris. But it turns out that my family had actually come from there. My grandmother's mother um, was a was a World War One bride who came from Paris. So I think there's a little bit of that family connection too. You know, we talked about that a little bit with the Forest of Vanishing Stars. How sometimes um, you know stories are in your blood or pieces of what you you're drawn to or maybe in your blood. And I think it's a little bit of that for me. But in terms of World War II in general, I think there's something really compelling about the idea that that time period still feels very relevant today. I mean, it, and um, it doesn't feel that far in the past, but yet it's far enough away that we can sort of look at it from a distance, if that makes sense. We're not so intimately involved with the events of 1940, you know, that we feel like we can walk out our door and, and encounter them. So it feels like a journey to someplace different and someplace new, but it still feels, um, I think, very modern. But I think it also is a time period where ordinary people, where civilians made a big difference. And I love that reminder that um, in this very dark time, it was ordinary people just like me and you who stepped up to make this difference. You know, they didn't have any kind of special training. They weren't in the military. They weren't in politics. You know, they were just housewives and people who owned bookshops and people who were carvers and painters and just people going about their ordinary lives. And, um, and they saw a need and they joined in and uh, worked for the greater good and found a way to make the world a better place. And I think that's a really important um, thing to think about and a, a, a thing to be inspired by, because if they could do that in the 1940s with, to the backdrop of war, um, we can all do that now to the backdrop of our everyday lives. We don't have to have a special position um, or have power to make a difference. We just all have to make it in our own little corner of the world. Um, but Ron, you also asked about why uh, 1960, 1960 and aside, aside from there. wanting yeah. to meet Patty there, it was also, <laughs> you know, I, 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 um, I think it was really interesting to me to venture out of a time period I'm very comfortable with. You know, I talked about in the forest of vanishing stars that that was a big departure for me because I ventured out of France, which I was comfortable with um, and had to research Poland, right? Um, this one, I came back to France, which is kind of my comfort zone, but I wanted to push myself again. And I liked the idea of going to 1960, a time period um, that did not feel as familiar to me. But which, honestly, I have spent a lot of time talking about because, as I've also mentioned to you guys, of course, I um, I worked for a long time with Chubby Checker on his memoir, which was never published. But so much of that memoir takes place around that time period that I felt like it was already kind of a part of my life. 1960 mm. already felt familiar to me. Mm. Um, but to plunge into that research and explore this completely different time period, I think, just um, made me stretch my wings a little bit more. And also... Um, I, I don't know. I, it was also really appealing to me to trace what happened, not just a few years after the war, but what what effects you would still be dealing with if you hadn't dealt with your stuff 17 or, you know, 15 or 17 years after the war, which, right. Patty, I think your book kind of touches on a little bit, too. Yeah. Universal themes, universal yeah. themes about yeah. who we are as humans. Yeah. So here on Friends and Fiction, of course... If you've been watching, you know we love to talk about origin stories, the little seed, the first poem you read, a story you heard, something that the story grew out of. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what yours was for the Paris daughter and then how, whatever that seed was, how you took that and went about developing a much larger story from that small seed. 
Well, you know, it, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of my books come from the books before. They come from these mm -hmm. little threads. And again, I keep coming back to Patty, but Patty, I feel like that kind of happened yeah. to you with Once Upon Oh, yeah, I, I mean, with, with, yes, with, with reading about the things that had happened with C.S. Lewis and um, and realizing and thinking about like what had actually happened to the children what who is were evacuated that? to the yeah. countryside. Yes. And it was the same thing. I was thinking, what what was it like to be living in um in uh, France or anywhere in Europe, but specifically in Paris, the city I love so much, under constant threat of bombing. Um, you know, knowing also that it wasn't going to be the Germans bombing you because you were an occupied country. It was going to be the allies dropping bombs, trying to get the Germans out. And that idea fascinated me, that idea of the civilians being in danger from people who were ultimately on their side, who were doing a good thing. But mm. um, but the more I began to kind of poke into that, the more I realized that throughout Europe, certainly not just in France, the bombs from the good guys dropped from the sky, intending to hit these military targets or these targets that would have driven the Germans out. They didn't always exactly hit those targets. They sometimes missed. They often fell on civilian areas um, with very tragic results. So there are stories about that all through World War II. And frankly, we're seeing that happen now in Ukraine, right? I mean, it, there's these all, just this awful um, sense of civilians being, well, although I guess in, in Ukraine it is certainly more targeted, but there's this sense of what does it feel like to live under that constant threat of bombing where nowhere is safe, where you can't go anywhere that's safe. And it's not like um, they had the luxury to evacuate to other places. All of France was sort of under this threat. So um, I was really interested in, in exploring that idea. I think that's where I started. And then it sort of went from there. I mean, it's hard, it, it's hard to sort of explain the process, because I, I feel, and I don't know about you guys, but I feel like so many of the ideas either come to me when I'm reading the research material or simply when I'm driving my car to pick Noah up or when I'm standing in the shower and I've let my mind wander. And the, the threads, once you kind of know what the book's going to be about and you have a general idea of where you're headed, these little threads just kind of weave their way in. And, and that was it. I mean, that was all these parts about the art and about, um, you know, who Olivier was and who Paul was and what happens to these families and then who they are in 1960 when we pick up with them again. Um, they were just these little threads that I wove in once I had this initial idea and once I began to follow these research paths uh, wherever they took me. And it was really interesting to research um, 1960 New York too. That was uh, that opened up a lot of new doors for me. Well, that brings us to the research. Talk to us a little bit about the research you had to do with the book, not just the historical stuff, but also, for instance, what it's like to carve wood. I mean, you had me believing that <laughs> when the rest of us were drinking wine, you were out learning how to carve birds <laughs> out of wood. And, 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 you know, how did you do the research about what it's like to hide in a bomb shelter with the sky falling down around you? Yes, well, Christy, yeah, I mean, do you now have an Etsy shop of all your bird, bird carvings? I, I, I do. Have you seen it? Have you been on Post a link. That's what I'm doing. Like when you when we're on the show and you see me looking down, I'm not looking at any script. I'm looking at the carving I'm doing in my lap while we're talking. I'm doing one of each of us, too. That's what I'd like for my birthday. You have about a month and a half. I, I, I'm on it, Christy. I'll, I've been whipping it up. As and I think we should each today. get a different bird. Right. Sorry. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if I just held up two right now? Like I've already <laughs> done them while we were talking. Um, I wanted it to be authentic. <laughs> that, that, the, 
it was something different because I I'm not I'm not good with stuff like that. I'm not good with artistic stuff. Uh, Jason, my husband, and Noah, my son, are much better like physical artists than I am. I just my art is my words, and that's not even that artistic. But um, I you know I um I, I did get a set of carving tools. I did get some blocks of wood. I did try my hand at it. Spoiler alert: you will not be getting um, carved oh, things in, unless what she would like is a block of wood with a couple of nicks taken out of it oh, with like some knives. <laughs> I'll be like, it's abstract. It's abstract art. Um, but I, I did connect with a wood carver um, named uh, Mary May, who I mentioned in the author's note, if you're interested in finding out about her. And I read a really interesting memoir, um, which you would think I would have actually prepared myself with the name of the memoir. I think it's called The Art of Carving. Um, I'll put the correct name on, on uh, the page, but it was really, really good. Like it really took me into the heart of what it was like to be a wood carver and not just the physical motion of it, which was important to get down for the book, but also what do you feel when you're carving? Like what, you know, and those were some of the things I was asking Mary May also, like what's the experience? Like, how does your body feel? It's not just your hands, it's your whole body. What, you know, what, what's going through your head? Why is this your medium? Why does it feel so grounding to do something so physical and so three-dimensional? Um, how is, you know, why, why this rather than clay? Like it was just interesting to sort of dive into all of those aspects of it. But as far as being under the threat of bombing, the research kind of came to me. I can't remember if I've mentioned this to you guys on the show before, but um, I had a call after the Book of Lost Names, or I'm sorry, an email after the Book of Lost Names from a man who um, emailed me and said, I just read the Book of Lost Names, which of course is um, partially about hidden children during World War II. And he said, I was a hidden child during World War II. And, um, you know, I would love to hear about your research and how you how you got it right, because you got it right. Like you captured what it was like to be a hidden child. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is so interesting. So we emailed back and forth and we set up a phone call. And I thought we were just going to talk about being a hidden child in World War II, which has a little bit to do with this book, because there is a story thread with that. Um, but he ended up telling me about how where he was hiding, they were under constant threat of bombs. And he talked about running down to the bomb shelter on a regular basis and being worried about what was falling from the sky and worrying about the gas masks and all of that. So it was something I was already writing in this book, but I was able to ask this man on the phone all of these questions. Like, and again, not the questions of like, you know, how many steps was it down into the bomb shelter? But the questions about like, how did it feel? Like, what, what did you, what were your thoughts when this was happening? What did it look like in the sky? What were the grownups telling you? You know, all of those emotional things that are kind of harder to pin down in the research. So that was really interesting. His name was Herb Barash. And we corresponded a little bit after that with some follow-up questions. But another thing I did, and Patty, again, coming back to you, since I know your book had to do with um, bombing too, I did get my hands on a French gas mask. This is a civilian gas mask from World War II. And it's a little bit different than what they would have worn in Patty's book um, because this was given out by the French government. It was a little bit of a different thing than what the um, the British government gave out, which Mary Kay, you might be able to speak to better than me because I know you just saw some of those in a museum mm -hmm. in um, in London, but this is what it looked like. And there is a um, there is a part in the book and now my fingers are all dirty from touching it because it's really this old, like, dirty, sooty mask. Um, there's a part in the book where they're in the gas shelter, the, the, um, where they're in their little um, basement sheltering from the bombs. And they refer to themselves as the Aardvark family um, because they all have them on and they look like Aardvarks. And so this is what I was envisioning, this sort of long um, Aardvark nose. So that is a French <laughs> civilian gas mask. How does that match up, Mary Kay, to what you saw in England? Well, the one I saw was was 
quite a bit smaller and more primitive look primitive looking and it was a child's gas mask which patty had written about in um in flora lee and so it it had a vague similarity to mickey mouse it was supposed to look like mickey mouse but if you were looking at it you would not have said oh that's a mickey mouse gas mask it wasn't how i pictured it like when i read about it and i mean you know when they talk about like very like oh it's the it's the mickey mouse yeah i don't know what i was picturing but then when you took the picture and you sent it to us i was like yeah like i can see why they called it the mickey mouse but i can also Mm -hmm. see why like it really freaked children out (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. you'll never see yeah you'll never Mm -hmm. see mickey mouse yeah, the same. No. I mean, yeah. well, yeah. and and I will tell you, like they're scary to put on. I mean, they're scary sitting in my in my office in 2023 Orlando, Florida, right? Mm-hmm. Like because you feel very they feel very claustrophobic. You can't see out of them very well. Ooh. You certainly cannot breathe in them very well. I would put it on now, but then I would have like sweat all over my face. But I mean, they really mm-hmm. you can sort of see they cover your entire face. And I think I did get sweat on my face, but um, but <laughs> now I have it all over me. So just excuse the dirt. But um, it, I it's it you can imagine how frightening it was not just to put on the mask in a completely non scary situation like sitting in your office in Florida, but to put it on when the air raid sirens are wailing. And especially if you can hear or see bombs falling anywhere nearby, if you can hear Mm -hmm. the return ack, ack, ack of gunfire. I mean, it must've been really just viscerally terrifying to people, you know? Yes. Yeah. Well, as many of our friends and fiction members know, Kristen, um, you went through something really difficult this year, Um, a breast cancer diagnosis Oh, and uh, a month of daily radiation. Um, and you had already completed uh, the Paris daughter by the time you received your diagnosis. You know, there aren't elements of your specific journey on these pages, but the Paris daughter at its heart really is a book about strength and resiliency in, um, in difficult times. So um, were there elements of the book that drew you on to survive some of the hardships in your own life? And and along those lines, are there elements we can all draw on, even if we're not exactly in um, Elise, Elise's and Juliet's shoes? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think I kept thinking all through the difficult days of the diagnosis, the treatment and all of that, um, that I had been writing myself into... Um, uh, into a lesson about how to support myself the the whole time through this. Um, you know, I've been writing really since The Sweetness of Forgetting in 2012. So for over a decade now, I've been writing about um, women who find this well of inner strength in an impossible situation, right? I, I mean, that's that's what you that's what that is what we pick up World War II books for. That's what we pick up a lot of historical fiction for. You know, we read these books about the past and we marvel at the strength of these people who came before us, and especially these women who came before us. And when we're writing historical fiction about real life women or real life events, it's not just these imagined um, characters in an imagined universe who are strong. It's women just like us who existed before us and have sort of shown us the way to find our own strength. And, um, and and so I think that was really something for me. I think I knew already on an intellectual level that I had more strength than I knew, that I was stronger than I knew. Um, but I just had to find it. And um, 
And just as is the case in many of my books, I didn't find it right away. I didn't get the diagnosis and immediately go deep into that well and pull out that strength and say, right, right. I'm ready <laughs> yeah. to go, books on. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's a process, but, um, but I think just like these women who have lived through war in this book and in my earlier books come to learn, um, you're a different person at the end of it than you were going into it. Um, and I think maybe that is the the lesson we can all draw on, that when you're faced with difficult times in your life, you will get through. You're going to figure out a way to put one foot in front of the other and get through. And not only that, but you're going to come out on the other side and you're going to be a stronger, better person for it. And none of us would have asked for the difficult things we've had to go through, the roads we've had to walk. Um, I certainly wouldn't have asked for breast cancer. Patty, you wouldn't have asked for breast cancer. We, you know, we wouldn't have asked for these things that that just throw an enormous, horrific, awful wrench in our lives. The things we have to grieve, the things we have to lose. Um, that's life. And it's going to happen to all of us. We're all going to have these awful, horrible moments that we have to get through but we can. And that is something that historical fiction teaches us. And I think it's something that all fiction teaches us. We read about women and, and about men finding strength in difficult times. And we're reminded that we can find it too. Yeah. I love that. That's so inspiring. Um, something that we haven't talked about, and I'm not going to talk about her like too in depth because I don't want to like give any spoilers away, but um, we've talked about Julia and Elise, you know, the yeah. mothers in this book. And there's, there's Ruth too, who's another mother who is a Jewish woman who has a, a very different journey in a lot of ways than Elise and Juliet, but then some similarities too, which again, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but um, something that really struck me about all of the mothers in this book, and you touched a little bit on this about kind of this like ancestral memory that we sort of have, but I think something that I kept thinking about in this book that I think is well done is that feeling of sort of attachment to the people that we love that, that doesn't necessarily, that can transcend death, I think, but also gives us a connection that sometimes makes us think that you know, it, it gives us like you, you talk about, you know, all of the places that the, the, the Jewish survivors would come back to, yeah. to try to find their family members and the people that go day after day, because they know that their family member is alive. They would feel it if they yeah. want that kind of thing. So yeah. how did you sort of tap into that for that story? That was a really long way of asking a short question, but how did you sort of tap into that feeling of that connection that we have? with those? Yeah. Th thanks mm -hmm. for mentioning that. And I'm glad you mentioned Ruth. You know, I didn't put her in the, um, in the little play we did, because I it, it felt like the central story I wanted to talk about to keep, sure. give you an idea yeah. of the book yeah. was Elise and Juliet. Yeah, Ruth is really central to it also. I mean, really, you know, when I talk about the book, I say two mothers, you know, two daughters, whatever. But there's also Ruth and Ruth has her two children as well. And just like Elise and Juliet, she has to make an impossible decision. She has to send her children away um, and she doesn't know if they're going to be safe. Um uh, she doesn't know if they're going to return at the end of the war. She doesn't know if she's going to return at the end of the war. Um, and she was a really powerful character for me to write to. Um, I felt like that was a little bit more connected to um, the the situation I was writing about in the book of lost names, the, the mothers who had to send their children along that escape line um, where the children were concealed and, and sent over the border, hopefully to yeah. safety. Yeah. Um, so I think the reason I put Ruth in there partially was maybe just answering some questions I myself had about what the mother's journey would have been during that book and in, in the right. book of lost names. 
But in terms of return, the people returning from concentration camps um, or being someone who survived and then going um, to this place called the Hotel Lutetia mm-hmm. um, in, uh, in Paris, which was the, um, the center for deportees to retur- when they were returning. So in Paris, when people had been sent away to the camps, after the war was over, the survivors who were brought back to France were processed through this place called the Hotel Lutetia in um, in central Paris, where they were given um, clothes and medical care and food. And the lists of the survivors were set up and you could go every day to this place and see if the person that you were waiting for um, was there. So it was this horrible, tragic thing because so many people didn't survive. But if you couldn't find your person's name on a list of the dead, um, you might keep going every single day day watching the line of faces coming towards you and these faces that sometimes just weren't recognizable I mean these people had spent um a year or two or more in these concentration camps and had become very malnourished um uh it just didn't look like themselves anymore in in a lot of ways um but people kept going because they felt in their hearts I would know it if I lost this person as you said Christy that that sort of that connection that gut feeling um and so tapping into that felt very, um, very personal because I, I could imagine that I, I, I could imagine. And, and you know what? I think Elise feels like that too. Uh, you know, yeah. her daughter, she comes back and learns that her daughter has died. Um, and she can't believe that her daughter has died and she didn't feel it. She didn't feel her daughter, her daughter's spirit, like leaving the earth, right? Like her, her she just was going on with her life and didn't know. Um, and, and I think that's how, um, the characters feel when they go to that uh, that meeting place too, hoping to see their loved ones. They think to themselves, I can't believe that that could have happened and, and I don't feel it yet in my gut. Did, did that sort well, of answer the question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and in Juliet too, you know, I mean, even though she knows her family's gone, she watched it happen. Yeah. But she, you know, is talking to them and yeah. communicating with it. It's very, it's, it's, it, was, it was just very, it was a very interesting theme to me that I felt like kind of, and it, I thought it was very heartfelt and well done. Well, thank you. All right, Kristen. Well, before we wrap up, everyone go buy your book. A few more (laughs) surprises, a few more quick messages from us before we go. So with all four of us having new releases, and I know we mentioned the Paris Daughter. It's out now. We have some amazing (laughs) events coming up. You can catch us live together multiple times. Even with Ron, he has his own fan club. So we've already been to Huntsville, Charleston, and Columbus. And next up, we will be in Tampa, Florida on July 20th at Oxford Exchange for Christie's launch of the Summer of Songbirds. I like saying that. The know, Summer of Songbirds. It's, it's Mary Kay's favorite kind of title. Um, <laughs> and then Beaufort, North Carolina on August 1st for a breast cancer fundraiser. And last and biggest... Mary Kay's, Mary Kay's, Darien, Connecticut on October 4th for Bright Lights Big Christmas. And Kristen, can you tell us where you'll be on tour for the Paris Daughter in the next few weeks? We started last night in Huntsville and now what? 
Well, now, uh, so we pre-taped this episode. So now, as we're airing, I am also with Mary Kay um, in Atlanta. So we are doing something in Woodstock with Colleen Oakley. So we're excited about that. Um, tomorrow, I'm in Greensville, Greenville, South Carolina for a luncheon and evening drinks. I'm in Polly's Island, South Carolina the day after that. Then it's on to Cape May, New Jersey, Tampa, Orlando, Cleveland with Ron. I'm so excited yeah. about that. Um, Rhode Island with Fiona Davis and Nicola Harrison. Bethany Beach, Delaware, Rehoboth Beach, Delaware with Wade, uh, with Wade Rouse. And finally, Brielle, New Jersey, where I will be seeing our very own Meg ooh, Walker. Ooh, so yeah, I'm excited yeah, about that yeah, too. So wait. me too. So you can find all of those ticketing links on my website, which is kristenharmel.com. Make sure that you are signed up for our Friends in Fiction newsletter and for our individual newsletters so that you're the first to know more about Kristen's events and all of our events separately and together. And on a personal note to all of you, we want to thank you for showing up week after week, especially for these special launch episodes. And we want to remind you how incredibly important first week sales are to a book's overall life and trajectory. Y'all, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sure y'all can hear this. They're like fighter jets going over my house. And they, it's, yeah, it does, is? yeah, but they like just keep going. And, and every time it happens, it's like a thing here. I don't know if people do this in other parts of the country, but like if you're sitting with bigger people, everybody goes, sound of freedom. Like I, Everybody does it all the time. <laughs> Christy, that is incredibly on brand for tonight since we're talking about like totally. Yeah, yes. like, was brand. huge. Like I had to I muted from it because they were like they just kept going. Wow. There were like ten of them, and I was like, oh, this is like really on brand for tonight. But then it always makes oh. me like a little nervous too. I'm like, where are they going? And what are they? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> just practicing. Anyway, um, the first book, the first week, super important buy the book, basically all we're saying. But like all of us here, Kristen works tirelessly every single week to bring this show and podcast to life. And this is a really great way that you can support her and tell her thank you for all the hard work that she does um, all year long for this one week of launch. So anyway, if you're enjoyed, if you enjoy tuning in, please consider supporting her this week. Yeah, I don't know how to say it in French. Buy her book, (laughs) voulez-vous. (laughs) <laughs> did you just make up that word because uh, i uh, voulez-vous buy the book um <laughs> por favor no that's spanish please how do you say please you play, you play. You play. play. buy the or, book Dana. or sacre bleu like right sacre you can bleu. say yes yeah. sacre bleu, sacre bleu. <laughs> sacre bleu. Mm-hmm. and don't forget don't forget to leave reviews on amazon goodreads oh, book bob that was good. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> okay, don't forget oh, to leave reviews on Amazon, Goodreads, BookBub, BNN, and wherever else you review books. And tell your friends and share on social media. Do all the, all the things. And you can't imagine how much that makes a difference to an author. Absolutely. Oh, is it mine? Nope. It's Christy. Nope, it's you, Christy Woodson Harvey. Oh, she's frozen. frozen. Oh, she's frozen. Oh. All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. One, okay, one last reminder. <laughs> you can she find all. She's pretty, though. Look how she, she's. Oh, oh, it's like she yes. posted. It's like, oh my gosh. It. It's like a photo shoot. I know. <laughs> I'd be like, oh no, we lost her. Oh no. I hope it's not the fighter jets. What's going on? No, I'm panicking. The fighter jets did it. <laughs> Okay, one last reminder. Find all back episodes of Friends in Fiction on YouTube, and we'll be back next week with our friends Fiona Davis and Heather Webb as our guests on the show. 
on Wednesday, June 14th, with Brenda Janowitz making a special appearance on the after show. We have such a fun episode in store for you. Congratulations again, Kristen, to all of you out there. We will see you next week. We hope you've all read The Paris Daughter by the time we see you again. Yes. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.